0: welcome to the podcast before we begin we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the elders past present and emerging i'm jan orman i host a webinar series for health professionals on behalf of black dog institute and the e-mental health in practice project in a recent episode we focused on the impact of diet on mental health my guests in the webinar were Dr. Tatiana Rox, a dietitian and researcher at the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University, clinical psychologist Gina Howland and GP Dr. Sarah Weaver. Also joining us was international expert in nutritional psychiatry and chair of psychiatry at Deakin University, Professor Michael Burke. At the outset, Tatiana was keen to have us understand how widespread the problem of poor nutrition is in our society, and how strongly that
1: links to mental health problems. Poor diets are actually leading cause of premature death in the Western countries. So it's absolutely shocking statistics, despite our efforts in the public health and. Uh, p- Addressing health of nation and individuals we still have poor diets. Message isn't getting through. Poor diets is the number one killer in Western countries. When you look what Australians actually eating, did you know that only four percent of us actually consume the recommended amount of vegetables? In a country where a majority of us are lucky to access fresh produce on a daily basis, if we wish, only four percent of us actually consume the recommended amount of vegetables.
0: Statistics show that Australians only consume a fraction of the recommended daily requirements of other basic food groups as well, 10% of dairy intake, 14% for meat, 30% for fruit and 31% for grains.
2: And those stats include children, don't they, children adolescents at a time when their brain is growing and their
1: bodies are growing? Absolutely. And when most of mental health issues manifest at around, we know, teenage years, very um, critical time. Did you know that one-third of total energy consumed in this country on a daily basis, is actually come from discretionary foods and beverages. And discretionary foods and beverages are those foods that don't actually have any nutritional value, only energy. It's highly processed foods, foods high in sugar, high in salt, high in fat. And if you look at specific age groups, there's no clear champions. We see in children, majority of discretionary energy comes from sweets and in adults, of course, we move to alcohol as we get older. Sarah, what do all these
0: statistics do to you as a general practitioner in terms of thinking about your patients and their diet?
3: It it is horrifying because we think we're getting the message out, five serves of vegetables, three serves of of fruit, et cetera, et cetera, but obviously we're not, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's probably – what it says to me is this is something that we need to pay a great deal more attention to across Mm -hmm. the board, not just mental health.
1: GPs and health practitioners done a good job of linking diet to physical health. That's what we've done for years, but it's only in the last decade when we actually started building – evidence around links between diet and mental health. And now we can see that overall diet quality has that direct relationship with mental health outcomes. So the higher your diet quality is, the better chances you have of protecting yourself from, um, say, depression or also managing any existing mental health issues. And we see that um, it's overall, it's coming from many studies, that traditional diets, such as Mediterranean or other diets, which have that common denominator, high consumption of vegetables, high consumption of fruit, grain, um, good fats and oils, and low consumption of highly processed foods. So this type of diets actually decrease risk by, for developing depression by about 30%. And what's interesting also, and what's important to note, that these associations are largely independent of socioeconomic status, education, body weight, and many other health behaviours. As
0: I mentioned earlier, Tatiana works at the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University, as does Professor Burke, and Gina is also currently a PhD candidate at the centre.
1: We focus on the role diet plays in mental health disorders. So um, we are a multidisciplinary research center. It's about 25 of us. Uh, we feel new and we were established by Professor Phyllis Djaka, who's a leader in nutritional psychiatry. So we have few aims. We aim to understand the way that um, what we eat actually influences our, our mental health, how we can prevent um, occurrence of mental health issues, and how we can treat the existing mental health disorders.
0: The Food and Mood Centre have a website and a blog where you can find out more about their research and about nutritional psychiatry generally. You can also find information there about the SMILES trial, one of the most important pieces of research to show the benefits of an anti-inflammatory diet on mental health. We thought it might be helpful to talk about an example of someone who illustrates the links between mental health and diet and some of the difficulties that GPs and other practitioners might have in including
1: diet in their thinking with these patients. Karen is 44-year-old female, and she presented to her GP to discuss her escalating anxiety and sleep issues. She lives in a regional city. She works as an accountant. She's married with three children, all teenagers. Could be a problem. Nah. She's generally very happy-go-lucky um, lady, but lately she's been having few issues with anxiety. She's talking about um, how she can't sleep, she wakes up, can't go back to sleep. And it's because she thinks it's because she can't go back to sleep and of her worrying thoughts, She's quite often um, feels very tired and uh, very unmotivated towards the end of the day. She also talk about um, starting to drink a little bit more than she would like to admit, and she says that sometimes it's just all what the, she sees, alcohol like a measure for her to get through the evening. She mentioned she's um, gaining some weight, but it's not an issue for her. They I just thought, can we think about how, what do we think about Karen? And what would we usually do with patients like Karen? I think that's a really good question for Sarah. What are you thinking mm. about Karen,
0: Sarah?
3: Well, I guess with my mental health bias, my sort of... I, put, I can see that most of those symptoms could be a part of a depressive picture, mm. um, and therefore that's probably where I would be thinking. Um, I think even um, with the amount of exposure I've had to what you've talked about now, I'd be saying uh, maybe there are some more links as well that I should be exploring. Mm. Um, but, but weight gain, sleep disturbance, use of alcohol, all those
0: things fit a sort of depressive picture. But she doesn't sound like somebody that you'd launch into a conversation about diet with, does does she? Not not at all. I mean,
3: the weight gain is the only one there, but I could easily put it down to a, as a, a eating for soothing or something mm-hmm. like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And also, she says it's not a problem for her, so yeah. it's hard then to open a conversation <laughs> about diet. It's when, much
3: easier when they say, "I've
2: putting on weight and I can't yeah. bear it." Yeah. Yeah.
1: And unfortunately, that's quite often what sparks a conversation about diet, it's putting weight on. But we know without actually gaining weight, there's so many other issues can be a result of a poor diet. But unfortunately, it does take that, you know, that message or that factor of weight, putting on weight to start conversation about diet.
0: Research suggests that there are a whole lot of ways in which mental health is linked to diet. One of the major ways seems to be through inflammation. Here's Professor Burke to explain.
4: For a long time, inflammation was thought of as the body's way to fight uh, infections and bugs. We now know that that is true, but that inflammation plays many other roles in the body. Chemicals that are responsible for the body's response to inflammation also play an important part in managing stresses of many different sorts. In the 1980s people began to think that inflammation was important in psychiatric illnesses as well. This was poo-pooed initially because at that stage people thought that they understood the causes of these disorders. More recently, we have begun to believe that this is indeed true. An important subset of people with depression do have elevated levels of inflammation, and we now know that, at least for a subset of people, inflammation has very important physiological functions. The presence of inflammation in people who have depression might have an important impact on the course of illness. Inflammation works together with other pathological pathways, particularly oxidative stress. These are potentially harmful to the brain if they are present in excess. In particular, uh, the presence of inflammation and oxidative stress reduces the growth and survival of nerve cells and reduces the branching of neurons or nerve cells and also reduces the synapses or the connections between nerve cells. This compromises the ability of the brain to function and there can also occasionally be a reduction in the size of parts of the brain as a consequence of this. As I noted earlier, many people thought that inflammation was only the body's attempt to fight bugs, but we now know that inflammation is a non-specific stress response pathway. Inflammation is present in response to a variety of stresses. These can include psychological stress. Um, It can include uh, things like not enough sleep, not enough physical activity, poor diet, the presence of comorbid medical disorders, and a host of other factors. These tend to combine and interact. For example, uh, poor diet, uh, obesity, smoking, all interact to increase inflammation and we know that these lifestyle risk factors as well as the pathways that they, inf- that they impact on such as inflammation, combined play a role in increasing the risk for disorders like depression. Unsurprisingly, there's a lot of research interest in inflammation as well as the factors that lead to inflammation because people are very keen to target inflammation to help people who have mental health disorders. One of the things we know about diet is that a poor quality diet increases inflammation. In fact, some people call a poor quality diet a pro-inflammatory diet. We know that changing your diet such that you consume foods that are associated with a lower risk of inflammation as an example, the Mediterranean diet, might improve mood, but might improve inflammation. Being physically fit does the same. Uh, Having good quality regular sleep does the same. People are also looking at medications that might reduce inflammation, and these too have promise. But for an individual with depression, the most important factor is that one can target inflammation and depression through changing lifestyle, particularly diet, physical exercise and reducing smoking and other drugs of abuse.
0: Now seems like a good time to talk about the gut microbiota and how that fits into this story.
1: The associations between mental health and um, our diet could be explained if we look at gut microbiota. Of course, gut microbiota been linked to numerous disorders, prevention and treatment of numerous physiological disorders, but it also can have an impact on our mental and brain health. And it's due to that gut brain access, that bidirectional communication which happens between our gut and cognition and emotion centers in our brain. There's quite a few ways it's actually happening. But of course, when we look at gut microbiota and when we look at um, how gut microbiota, what factors might impact, gut microbiota diet is one of the biggest and generally what we understand that diet rich in fiber such as plant-based diet like Mediterranean diet contributes to maintenance of healthy gut microbiota and it's reflected in increased diversity of gut microbiota and increased function so if you'd like to think about your gut microbiota like set of tools so the more tools you have the better you basically equip. And diet rich in fiber helps us achieve that variety in gut microbiota. On the other hand, if we look at Western diet, which a key feature of Western diet is that very low intake of fiber and high intake of sugar and the protein and fat so these type of diets western type of diets been actually linked to reduce gut microbiota diversity to reduced function and also increase that inflammatory factor in the gut which then of course can radiate over to overall body including your brain. The evidence from human studies suggests
0: that omega-3 fatty acids, which can act as anti-inflammatory agents, and anti-inflammatory diets such as the Mediterranean diet can reduce the symptoms of depression, while pro-inflammatory diets have been shown to increase the risk of depression
1: we do have a meta-analytical level of evidence that demonstrates effectiveness of dietary treatment, particularly in females and particularly in um, depression. If you
0: look at depression treatment guidelines, including that of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, you'll see that they all emphasize the need to attend wherever possible to what they call STEP zero, the normalization of lifestyle factors before embarking on pharmacological treatment for depression. Step zero includes managing sleep hygiene, reducing alcohol and other substances, increasing physical activity and eating a healthy diet. Intervening at this level is not always easy and may require the support of other specialists such as dieticians, drug and alcohol experts and exercise physiologists. But it's worth noting that there are many online tools that can help you help your patients modify these lifestyle factors. If you need more information about online resources, it would be worth going to the Head to Health website, that's www.headtohealth.gov.au, or to the eMental Health in Practice site, which publishes a terrific guide for clinicians to reliable online resources for mental health care. The big question, of course, is how do we even start a conversation about diet, especially with someone who has
1: come in for what they see as an unrelated problem? We're not planning to turn health practitioners into dietitians, but just to understand the interest of your patient, to understand if you are to refer to dietitian, will your patient actually use the referral? So you could ask someone what they like to eat, do they pay attention to their diet, to what they're eating? Are they living with a family? What's main factors that actually impacting what they eat? And there's quite a, quite a few interesting answers usually come out of those questions. So, Sarah, as a GP, what sort of
0: question would you ask to start a conversation about diet?
3: I guess a fairly general one with sort of it would probably be helpful to, to, to have a look at what you're eating. Tell me about what you normally have for breakfast, what you normally have for each of the meals. Uh, do you ever vary that? Um, do you eat between meals, those sorts of things. So I think asking about specific things rather because a lot of people will say, oh, I don't know, I have a good diet, if you ask a general question. So you really do need to be a bit specific.
0: Gina, how do
2: you manage it as a psychologist I have a intake form that I use that asks general questions and one of the questions on there is diet and so I piggyback on that so when we are you know in our initial sessions and we're talking about some of their responses one of the areas is diet along with the other lifestyle factors as well around sleep and so that usually you know picks it up if they you know if they're on a special diet or or mm-hmm. if they're worried about their diet and then we I've you know, broaden the conversation from there. And so that's been my way in. And I ask that question even for my teenagers and my kiddie clients, I'll ask the parents around that, just very broad to begin with, and then piggyback off that.
0: The panel agreed that referral to a dietitian may not be helpful if the patient was not adequately motivated to make any changes. So as primary carers, we probably need to get better at assessing our patient's stage of change and at working to increase their motivation for change. That may mean a fair bit of time spent on patient education. If you do think a patient would benefit from referral to a dietitian, a good place to find one is the Dietitians Association of Australia website.
2: Even if we understand and appreciate the links between diet and mental health, as we were discussing, putting it into practice can be a little bit challenging um, and hence the tips. Um, Most of these tips do come from um, me as my role as a psychologist, but I think many of them could translate to other roles as well. Um, My first tip is around being a role model. Um, That means sending a message to your patients that the link between diet and mental health is important, and, and the way that you do that is you prioritise it in your practice. Um, this means you need to be informed and you need to be resourced um, to be able to support patients to improve their diet, and that that's really the whole point around a lot of the tips and strategies and links that we have today. Um, you know, we've already talked about the idea of you know what message we might be sending if we never actually ask our patients about their diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also. Sometimes your role is... May not even to be um, to get them to change their diet. It might be just to get them to consider the idea that diet might be playing a role um, in a crucial role in their mental health or any of the lifestyle um, factors for that matter. Um, being a role model might mean it might be as simple as just having a poster up in your waiting room. You know, um, in terms of um, being a role model in that matter. Um, the second tip is around keeping it really, really simple. Um, the information that we provide as clinicians and practitioners. It carries weight and it it is important, but there's lots of confusing information out there. Um, And so I would suggest consider the idea of chunking. Um, And that's where you break everything down into really simple components and you support patients to make small changes incrementally. Um, So you also need to make sure that your advice is feasible and maintainable. Otherwise, um, they're just not going to be able to keep it up. For example, with soda consumption, you might be working with the patient to set up a goal where they have um, you know, soft drink every second day instead of every, every single day. And that might be a goal that they work towards. Um, The third tip is around integration. So patients and clients um, don't really need to be bombarded with lots of information and fact sheets and data and things like that. Um, I I would suggest that you try and integrate this link between diet and mental health um, at each stage in your practice. So for psychologists, this means, like I'd mentioned earlier, um, assessing for diet Dietary factors in your initial assessment, um, including it as a factor in your formulation, um, providing therapy content and resources around it, and being really ready to refer on to a, a dietitian or at least discussing the role of a dietitian. Um, I, I tend to include a recommendation um, regarding diet in almost every assessment report that I write. I'm um, in an effort to, to promote this idea. I, I think that um, very often patients or clients. They have knowledge and they have ideas about what they want to do, but they feel very overwhelmed or confused about how to actually make those changes. And We don't want to disempower them any further by simply just telling them what to do. So I would suggest where you can try and work collaboratively. And What does that look like? Um, I think it means just being really curious about um, what they already know and helping them to implement their own ideas to change, being really respectful of any fears that they have or limitations and being aware of where they're at uh, motivation-wise.
0: If we've convinced you that you need to talk more to your mental health patients about diet, but you don't feel that you have the knowledge to support the conversation, I'd like to recommend the online course that Tatiana has devised called Food and Mood, Improved Mental Health Through Diet and Nutrition. It's a free course available on the FutureLearn platform that's suitable for both practitioners and patients. It's not a bad place to start. There will also be a more advanced course available later this year on the same platform, but that one will not be free. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and learnt something from it that's immediately applicable to your practice. If you'd like to view the webinar from which these excerpts come, you can find it available on demand on the Black Dog Institute website. I'm looking forward to talking with you next time.